The U.S. Agency for International Development has started up a new office called Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility, and it's hired someone to run that new office. Nene Diallo joins me now. Ms. Diallo, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So you are the director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and Accessibility. I'm just going to ask a basic question. What do you actually do in that job? Well, that's a great question. First off, I'm the first Chief Diversity Officer at USAID. It is a commitment that USAID Administrator Samantha Power has as President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have prioritized DEIA through the federal workforce. And Administrator Power has prioritized DEIA since her first day in the office when she signed and approved USAID's uh, DEIA strategic plan. And, you know, since that day, Administrator Power has continued to emphasize the importance of increasing diversity, ensuring equity and improving inclusion and expanding accessibility, while also working to create the workplace, you know, free from discrimination, harassment and retaliation. As UCID's Chief Diversity Officer, I'm similarly committed to upholding USAID's core values, you know, which includes promoting integrity, respect, and inclusion in all that we do to support USAID's critical and life-saving mission around the world. At UCID, we believe in integrating DEIA across our workforce and operations, and it's not simply because it's the right thing to do. It's because we do believe that the research backs us up, and it's smart for us to do. It helps us be better engaged with and empower the diverse communities which we serve around the world. So with that said, being in this role, this office, it's like a startup, building a team and, you know, truly engaging the workforce from our partners across the agency. And it's about making sure that it's not just diversity in terms of looking at our workforce, but also looking at our programs and how we engage with our partners in the countries in which we work. My immediate goals, you know, for this next year will be to look at the data. I believe in taking an evidence-based approach to seeing where the data is in terms of how we can reduce potential barriers that could be there in our hiring, our promotion, and our professional development, in diversifying our workforce, you know, through the ranks, you know, which includes recruitment and promotions, and then also creating access for minority and women-owned businesses to partner with USAID. Sure. Well, let me just get back to that idea of hiring, because legally, and for many years now, it has been illegal to make discriminatory decisions for or against, really, on the basis of race and a number of other factors. So give us a sense of the measure of success. What's the metric here to know that the work you're doing has some effect on, say, the intake of people? That's only one aspect of it. And then there's also the promotion and access to bigger and better jobs as time goes on for everyone. That's the million-dollar question on, you know, how. And let's be honest here, this is not going to change overnight, which is why I say, you know, we have to look at the data and to see what the story is telling us. So this is going to take us working across the agency, me working with our HR partners to determine, you know, what is our recruitment strategy? Where are the promotions? Who's being promoted? who's coming into the organization. And I do know that there's a concerted effort to reach out to uh, minority-serving institutions, which, you know, works with HBCUs or Hispanic-serving institutions and the like to, you know, bring in staff. But sometimes when you look at those numbers, it's bringing in junior staff, and that might, I guess, bringing in people of color at a certain level, and then it's, you know, where do they go from there in terms of their promotion potential. So the work that I'm charged to do is to say, okay, let's look across the levels at USAID. Let's see what our percentages are at. We're looking at the entire demographic, and then working concertedly 
with intention, again, with our HR partners and across the agency to see how we can do a better job in terms of our recruitment efforts to make sure that there is equity across. There is no, you know, concrete answer right now to say, you know, here's the magic bullet to solve it. But I think that the passion and integrity that I've seen thus far in my short time here is seeing that people do want to see a change and do want to see us move in the right direction. Because one of the intractable problems that the government knows it has, and I've heard it now for probably 25 or 30 years of covering this, and that is that the percentage, whatever it might be, of a given ethnic group in the general workforce does not map over into the senior ranks so that there seems Mm -hmm. to be some kind of nobody knows what the cause is, but whatever, say, the proportion of blacks in the federal workforce as a whole might be what you would expect – but the number of blacks in senior executive ranks or in upper level ranks does not hold. And that's something Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of agencies feel has to be fixed, but nobody really knows how to go about doing it. You're absolutely right. And we're very transparent about that as well, that, you know, we can do better and should do better. And again, like I said, it would take really reaching across the aisles and everybody sitting down and looking at how can we be intentional about making sure that we are recruiting at all levels and, you know, including in the senior levels to make sure that we are recruiting a diverse staff. It's going to take having hard conversations. (laughs) Um, It's not easy. It's not going to be changed overnight. But like I said, I've been met with the most passionate staff that I've seen across demographics, white males, white females, African Americans, Asians, and the Latinx community here at USCID are committed to making sure that we can see that equity across USCID's recruitment and hiring. We're speaking with Nene Diallo. She is the Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And from a programmatic standpoint, How big will your office be? Do you expect to have 10, 20, 30 people? And will they be located throughout the world as USAID itself is? Or how do you envision this all functioning? I have a current small team of six people, but we're looking really to grow that to probably about 15 or so. And it'll be working across three different divisions. People, Workplace, and Culture, that really works with our DEIA councils, which are based here in Washington, D.C., and also in several missions across the world. Then we also have our training, events, and outreach division that conducts all of our inclusion and leadership trainings here. And then our third division will be the development programming, which will look at ensuring that the agency stays committed and accountable to the equity action plans that were issued by the executive orders by uh, President Biden. And then also working across the agency on coordinating our efforts on our minority serving institutions outreach, which is partnering with HBCUs and Hispanic learning institutions, etc. And in your experience, do you feel the government is a little ahead of, a little behind of, or about equal with industry with respect to making sure that there is diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility? Without really knowing the details of what the private sector is doing, I'm actually very, very impressed with where the federal agencies are right now. You know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but federal agencies publicly released their equity actions plans. On the first day of the Biden-Harris administration, the White House issued an executive order that was focused on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. And the order served as the recognition that one of our greatest strengths as a nation is in our diversity. 
and that in order to pursue this comprehensive approach to advancing equity for all people, it directed all federal agencies to conduct an equity assessment and then to use those findings to develop an equity action plan. And the Domestic Policy Council, which is part of the White House, led by Dr. Susan Rice, held an event where federal agencies launched their plans. And, you know, you can find USAID's plan on our website at www.usaid.gov equity, where you will see our assessment, what our recommendations are, and how we're going to address it. So I would say that the administration and or, you know, federal government right now is moving at lightning speed (laughs) to address this because I think they see the urgency in ensuring that we break down the barriers that have been holding underrepresented groups back for years. And what's the very first thing USAID will do in its plan? So the first thing that we're going to be doing is we're going to continue developing work with USAID.org, which is a website that is going to help welcome new and underrepresented partners work with USAID. We're going to enhance the implementation of our non-discrimination policy for beneficiaries. We're going to reduce the internal and external barriers to securing USAID awards, which includes the reduction of the administrative burdens that a lot of them have experienced, which has prevented them from being able to win awards with us. And then we're going to hopefully designate inclusive development advisors at each mission and then implement a consistent approach to incorporate racial, ethnic, and diversity into our policy planning and learning. And while we have you, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this job. My own experience was both in the public and private sectors, and it's really led me to appreciate the importance of embedding DEIA in everything that we do. As the Millennium Challenge Corporation's diversity and inclusion lead, I helped us align the DEIA goals against the agency's strategic framework and human capital strategy. I also implemented a range of DEIA training for staff and leadership. And after leaving the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is another federal government agency, I also served as the Senior Vice President for Marketing Communications at Poxstock, which is a global Black-owned media platform focused on increasing representation and diversity in stock media. In that role, I pushed for greater representation for people of color and communities across a range of communications channels. And I really, truly understand that the role that we play here and in this role as USAID's first chief diversity officer, that we have to make sure that in the work that we do in the international development space is not taken for granted, that, you know, we should not take for granted that because we work in this space that there must not be bias, that there must be equity and inclusion by the mere fact of the work that we do. But sometimes that's where the most egregious offenses happen. And I'm just really proud to see and be part of an agency that truly, truly believes that DEIA must be embedded in everything that we do. And I'm really proud of what USAID has accomplished so far. And it really reflects the commitment of the leaders across the entire agency and at every level. I'm really looking forward to partnering with everybody in moving this forward. Nene Diallo is the Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity. 
and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. 
It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.